Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, could Canada's gun laws change soon? We're going to discuss that and more with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. How did the central bankers lose their grip on inflation? A lot of people asking that. We'll try to answer the question. And the tragedy in Uvalde was the focus of the NRA's convention this past week, but speakers say the way to stop these massacres is with more weapons, not fewer. Reggie Cicchini, Global's guy in Washington, will uh, be with us with that report. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We'll kick things off in the nation's capital, talk about some of these hot issues, and to do so, so pleased to welcome back to the program, Dr. Lori Turnbull. Uh, Dr. Turnbull, of course, is the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Lori, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me, Bill. It's always good to talk to you. It is, and this is a very a, a big day because there's different kinds of legislation. Uh, D- David Lametti, of course, the Justice Minister, uh, announcing that uh, later on this afternoon uh, he's going to table legislation uh, to do with, I, I guess it's not going to be a ban on handguns, but uh, pushing something that I think the, the Prime Minister had made a, as a campaign promise. Uh, and I got to, I, I, I know they did sort of say we want to draw the link, but you got to figure that this is being inspired, at least, or the catalyst is going to be what happened in Uvalde uh, late last week. Oh, absolutely. I mean, obviously, everybody is thinking about that and everybody's talking about that. And so there's a kind of, um, you know, some some pressure or some expectation that the federal government is going to act on some of the promises that it's made regarding gun control. And so some of this is going to be, I think, um, pieces that were in previous legislation that they ended up not having the runway to go through with because of the election last year, and then some new things. And so uh, mandatory buyback of uh, assault-style firearms, there's going to be a crackdown on high-capacity firearms, uh, magazines, and then there's going to be some efforts around combating gun smuggling. And I think, as you say, there's not. I don't think there's going to be an outright ban on handguns, but the, they're going to work with the provinces and the municipalities to try to, to take steps in, in toward you know, managing that. But how effective is that going to be, Laurie? I mean, they've, they've talked about this in the past and say, well, we'll leave it up to municipalities. How, how can a city, a municipal government, actually uh, undertake something as extreme as that? Well, that's it, right? Like, And so we see like in something like this that is so complex to begin with, and doesn't fit into the category of, of, you know, this is this is not neat and tidy by any stretch. This is a difficult thing to do. It's difficult to get a piece of legislation that actually gets at what you want to get at. And then they have to think about, um, you know, how people are going to respond to it and what the capacity is of municipalities to be able to manage something like this. And so they are saying, you know, they want to work with the other orders of government, provide funding, provide incentives, things like that. But it will be that kind of you know, frankly, unsatisfying patchwork approach where what's going on in one municipality might not match what's going on in another. And that's going to create this sense of a policy gap and perhaps, you know, a lack of fairness. And there's a lot, obviously, a lot of stakeholders, a lot of people who are very close to this issue who are going to keep engaging on it. And so I think this is going to be something that really, um, you know, dominates the conversation politically for a while. But of course, it's it's the end of May, right? Like we're going into that home stretch period where they want to break in a month's time for the summer. And so they're going to start bringing in this, these big pieces of legislation that they're going to try to get through the House and the Senate in enough time, right? And so that part, too, is going to be tricky. If not impossible. So is this really just to lay the seed and start the debate on this? And, and maybe, like I would think, uh, they'll pick this up in September or October or whenever it is they come back from their summer break? 
Well, I mean, that's, that's what I'm thinking, because again, like there's, there are so many voices who are, you know, very appropriately and necessarily and rightly weighing in on this. And so once you bring a bill like this to the House of Commons, I mean, and obviously this is something that the conservatives have a, a lot invested in too. And so the, we can assume that the liberals and the NDP are sort of on side with this, given the, given the agreement that they have. And they also have worked together um, to impose time allocation in some places. And so you don't see a bill necessarily taking forever to get through the House of Commons so that some of the implications of this confidence and supply agreement are those sorts of procedural pieces that make sure that a bill gets through the House in a, you know, what the government would probably say is a timely fashion. On the other hand, something like this would be politically extremely dangerous for the government to be seen to be ramming it through, even if the NDP are saying they're on side. If people want to be heard on this, they've got to let that happen. And then the Senate the Senate is a whole other world, especially since the prime minister has, de- has decided that senators are supposed to be independent. That means that there's been a whole lot more lobbying towards senators than there ever has been over the past couple of years, right? And so people who are engaged in this legislation are going to be focused on both houses. I can't see how this is going to get through in a month. But as you say, right, this might be something that they're dropping this now, and they plan to pick this up in September. Yep. Speaking of uh, Justice Minister David Lametti, he was on all the uh, talk shows, of course, over the weekend, uh, talking about the idea that the federal government may intercede uh, with two Quebec pieces of legislation, of course, that passed uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, Bill 21, and of course, uh, with what the bill, what they're calling 96. So that's basically, mm-hmm. I guess, the, the nicknames are the Religious Symbols uh, Act and, of course, the uh, French Language Act. Uh, and uh, as expected, of course, the uh, Premier of the province of Quebec, Legault, is simply saying that's none of your business. And Lamedi's saying, yeah, just wait and see. So there, there's, a, there's a battle brewing here. Oh, definitely. And there's also an election for Quebec in October, right? And so, like, that's not a, this is not a coincidence. Legault is firing this up over the summer. And, you know, it, I think fair to say kind of putting this out there and just sort of daring the federal government to respond. And he's saying this is a Quebec issue. This is about us protecting language rights in Quebec. This is not something for the federal government to get involved in. But of course, the federal government has indicated that if there are charter challenges to either of these pieces of legislation, that they're going to be on board. And so they're not going out to pick the fight with Quebec. But they're saying when that happens, we are going to participate in, you know, we're willing to kind of participate in those conversations. And so I think trying to step away from a direct political conflict with Legault, and so you get this sort of Legault being the savior of French in Quebec versus the federal government. That's the last thing. And Lametti is a Montreal MP. And so there's so many layers of, of just political, you know, analysis and content over this. But I think, yeah, like, Trudeau and Lametti don't want to be on the other side of this, they, but they do want to be showing that they are taking into account what, you know, the, the rights of linguistic minorities in Quebec would be and the fact that there is charter protection for those things. But the other piece is that Quebec is, has kind of preemptively tugged on the notwithstanding clause. And so that's a whole other part of the conversation, too, that the feds are saying that's not fair. That's not the point of, of that clause. And we need to talk about that. Uh, under the context of a political theater, I got to ask you, though, Laurie, is it is it just coincidence that the language issue and and the uh, the uh, threats against Quebec sovereignty and Quebec culture always seem to come up just before an election? <laughs> well, that's it. I mean, it's something that um, you know. Yeah, we've you can predict that. You can predict the ebb and flow of those sorts of issues really heating up and taking over the airwaves when a premier is about to seek 
another mandate in Quebec, right? And I mean, Legault is, I think, seen as a, you know, a, a very strong voice for Quebec. And he's somebody that like has had an interesting relationship with Trudeau and that sometimes it seems like they're quite on different sides of things and other times they seem to be getting along okay. But there's, that's one of that, the parts of our federal system that are always really politically charged up is this relationship between the feds and Quebec. And the fact that, again, you know, as, as Lametti is a, is a Montreal MP, Trudeau is a Montreal MP. And so it puts them in an interesting space in terms of how they respond to this, because they're responding to it as the federal government, but they're responding to it as Quebec MPs as well. And so they have a kind of, you know, personal and representational attachment to these issues themselves. Now, of course, the feds are suggesting that Premier Legault may be abusing the Charter of Rights. Not the mm-hmm. first premier that's been accused of that. Uh, Doug Ford, of course, uh, with uh, his his you know, opposition to uh, to the federal government's uh, environmental plans. Uh, Jason Kenney, uh, other premiers have thought to do this. Now, Lametti made a statement yesterday. Maybe we're bearing the lead here because this could turn into a battle royale because he's suggesting that he may ask the Supreme Court to review the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and, and whether or not it's, it's, it's still effective in the way that premiers seem to think it is. Well, that's it. And I think like on some way, in some ways, that's politically clever of the federal government because they're like, yeah, we're going to we're going to take you on on this and we're going to you know, we're not going to back down in terms of this this back and forth with Quebec on, on Bill 96. But we're going to go at it from the perspective of the legitimacy of the notwithstanding clause, as opposed to taking on the language issue itself. And that gives them a lot more space and I think a lot more legitimacy, again, to be taking on this issue as something that is constitutionally necessary and is the right place for the federal government to be intervening, as opposed to we're going to take you on in terms of how French is going to be protected in Quebec. That's a miserable position for Lametti and Trudeau to be in. And so the notwithstanding clause gives them a bit of a way of getting at this issue, but from another angle. But also, like, you know, very interesting point around what the what the purpose of the notwithstanding clause is and whether it's it's completely illegitimate to be using that as a first round move as opposed to a last round move. And so using it preemptively to say, you know what, if this is if this is anti-charter, we don't care. We're doing it anyway. And that's the kind of the, the sort of move that I think is was not the original constitutional intent of the clause. The clause was meant to be, as Lametti says, you know, the I agree with him, the last part of the conversation, not the first part. And so it's it's something too that like for a long time, notwithstanding clause wasn't used at all. And so there was, there's been arguments around, is it still legitimate? Because is, can we conclude that there's a sort of unwritten rule? There's a convention that we don't use it, right? And, but if Quebec picks it up and dusts it off and says, yeah, we're going to use it, well, that changes the game again. And this has implications for all the provinces, as you say. Yeah, if they follow through, and it kind of sounds like they are. This is, I guess, people are still in Stanley Cup mode. Uh, this is a coach's challenge. Me too. Uh, that Maddie's issuing out there right now, and he, wa- he wants a ruling on this. Oh, yeah. Uh, speaking absolutely. of rulings, speaking of rulings, uh, the uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Louise Arbour's report on sexual harassment and misconduct in the Canadian military is going to be released today. Uh, of course, the uh, Defense Minister, Anita Andan, I'm sure, will be there. Uh, she's had 10 days to uh, make this public according to the mandate. Well, this is the 10th day, so here we go. Uh, somebody suggested over the weekend that heads will roll. I, heads have already rolled. I mean, what kind of an impact is this report going to have? We, I think we pretty much already know the content of it. Well, that's it. And I mean, you know, un- unfortunately, uh, there was already a report from a previous justice who, you know, probably would have foreshadowed a lot of things that are going to be in this report. So it's well, not did, like you we said that, have... Larry, you told us that a couple of months ago that Justice Arbour could just cut and paste. Yeah. And so I'm sure in some cases that that has happened. And then there will be you know new content and reflections on things that have been discovered over the past couple of years. But yeah, I mean, I don't think the purpose of a, of 
Justice Arbor's role here is for heads to rule. Like that's that's the government's situation. Yeah. That's not her situation. She's going to be making recommendations on the systemic issue. And so how the government responds to that, I think, is going to be very important. People will watch what their response is over the next couple of days and weeks. Are you going to action the items, the recommendations in the report? Or are you going to say, we're going to take this under advisement? Thanks. And then it's another report to go collect dust somewhere. I think the public mood is that that will not be acceptable at all. And I think there's a specific, you know, there's a real pressure on this government to to do something about this. Um, And so we'll see whether or not we see any concrete steps around that. But I think people, again, are looking for action, not a solemn, uh, you know, oh, God, we know this is really important and we're going to work and take steps. Like, no, no. what, What are your actual plans today? How much pressure is on Minister Anand about this, too? And I'm not suggesting this is the only reason, because I think she's a very capable individual uh, and did pretty well on her other portfolio. Uh, but a lot of people were speculating when she got this portfolio that, well, it's time to break up the old boys club and do something about this instead of just saying thanks for the report and, stiff, as you say, sticking in a bottom drawer someplace. Uh, the ball's going to be in her court now, isn't it, to say, okay, now what are you going to do about this? I think that's right. And I think especially given the optics around her appointment to this file, because she has, you know, she was she was the minister who was responsible for the procurement, the rollout of the vaccines. And so, I mean, she has proven herself, you know, in, in terms of being able to take a very difficult file, make progress on it, communicate effectively about it. And so when she took this file, I mean, this, you know, like this isn't something uh, that she... You know, she doesn't have a whole bunch of experience with the military per se, but oftentimes ministers don't have personal experience in the thing that they take on. But then the role becomes for her, you know, taking the file from the previous minister. I think her strength as a communicator was probably a big reason why she was handed handed this file. But also, I think there is a, a very clear pressure on her to respond differently, you know, to change the channel on how the government has been dealing with this issue so far. It's about, you know, when you set up a new minister like that and somebody who has been a a doer and an achiever and has a track record, that puts a lot of pressure to do the same, you know, in the subsequent file and to show that you are actually going to make progress. But obviously this is extremely difficult. It's an, it's a systemic organizational issue. Change doesn't happen overnight, how she can communicate what she's going to do and then show progress, show results she's going to need some patience on that. Again, these aren't things that she can do overnight, but she can take some immediate steps to show how things will be different. And I think what's going to be important too is sending assuring messages to people who are in the military now about, you know, why they can trust the government to make, make progress on this. That hasn't been happening so far. Well, as you mentioned, uh, only a few weeks until the uh, summer recess and boy, they've got a lot on the to-do list before they get there, don't they? This is going to be a very busy June. Yep, they are it's setting themselves up today. Looking forward to that, as always. Uh, Laurie, thank you so much for this. Have a great week. We'll talk again soon. That sounds great, Bill. Take care. We bet you. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University uh, with our weekly look at the federal political scene. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about the economy. Let's talk about the numbers and, and what's going on and why it's going on. Uh, interesting piece in the Globe and Mail the other day that suggested uh, that the central banks have lost their grip on inflation. I mean, after all, these are the experts that are supposed to warn us about these things and take preventative measures. Uh, have they dropped the ball here? Well, far be it for me to make that that call, but our next guest might be able to shed some insight into this. As a matter of fact, I know we can. Marvin Ryder is a business professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, Marvin, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for coming on today. Glad to be with you, Bill. Sorry I've been absent for a couple of weeks. 
I was touring the country of Egypt. Wow. Uh, so is that your first trip there? That was my first trip there. I stood inside four different pyramids, five tombs, and at least a dozen temples. It's all quite awe-inspiring if you happen to get there. My only experience, of course, is watching Death on the Nile, the Agatha Christie story. But, I mean, I, I'm sure you, yours was a little more extensive than that. Uh, so welcome home, anyway. Good to have you with us. We'll, uh, we'll have to do the travelogue uh, talk sometime about exactly what you say. Uh, what's, let's, let's talk about uh, what greeted yeah. you when you got back here. Uh, runaway inflation yeah. is galloping now, Marvin. What's happening? Well, I don't know if I'd quite call it runaway inflation, but it's certainly much higher than we desire. So let's quickly set some stage here, some context. Sure. The uh, Bank of Canada, who really does try to keep a handle on inflation, has a goal of keeping inflation between 1% and 3%. And they had been successful doing that until July of last year when it started to creep above 3%. And we now think in hindsight they were a little slow to act, meaning they thought, oh, this will be a temporary thing. It's due to increased demand after COVID. You know, we were all locked down for a couple of years and suddenly when we had the opportunity to go out and spend money, we did. And But that will only last a short period of time. Of course, they didn't know that Russia was planning to invade Ukraine. They didn't know that impact on world oil prices. And, and then in fairness to them, we weren't sure. And by the way, we still have not declared an end to the COVID pandemic. We were watching Omicron appear. Maybe Omicron's going to get carried away. There was a new variant of the virus every couple of months. Maybe there'll be another one of those. So they weren't sure when. They knew they were going to increase interest rates, but they didn't want to do it in a way that would have uh, a crushing effect on the economy. And so the feeling is they waited too long, and this is why they're playing catch-up. Now, on Wednesday, Bill, the Bank of Canada meets to take a look at their trend-setting rate. It's not a question of if they're going to raise the rate on Wednesday. They will. The only question is, is it a quarter of a percent or a half a percent? My bet is a half a percent to once again try to put a little ding on inflation and bring it back down from where it is now in Canada at 6.8%. They sure want to get it back down to that 3% range. I think they will be successful, but it'll be in the second half of this year, more like October, November. So we're going to have to live with this for a while longer. Uh, echoing the sentiments of, uh, well, the guy that runs the, funny, the mining side on uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve on the south of the border, Jerome Powell, uh, said the same thing. He says, if we could go back in time, yeah, we probably uh, were too slow in dragging our feet on this. But wasn't it at that time, Marvin, a situation when it did creep above 3% where they're damned if they do and damned if they don't when it comes to interest rate hikes? Well, in a way, you're right. Uh, and let's keep in mind that this is not a normal period in our lives. We are still under a pandemic. Uh, we, are, we have no control over COVID. It, it can mutate and change. We saw Delta variant last year. We saw the Omicron variant came out. We were suddenly getting vaccines. You know, if you think back to July of last year, some of us had had two shots. Some of us hadn't had any uh, vaccinations at all. There was talk of a booster. We weren't sure. And so the Bank of Canada or the Federal Reserve in the United States they're, they're witnesses to this, and they're trying to figure out what is the right action to take for the economy layered at the same time as a pandemic. And what we now know is that while Omicron was certainly more contagious, it wasn't more deadly. We didn't see a lot more people in the hospital. So they could have acted sooner. And then the other thing that was somewhat unpredictable was our spending patterns. 
we as consumers really did ramp up our ordering and this led to those things that we've talked about before bill as well these supply chain issues the supply chain is not that the chain itself is broken is that you and i started demanding more goods faster than businesses could produce them so it's the all old law of supply and demand if demand goes up and, and supply can't keep pace the prices go up more than we'd like them to and and even now we're still struggling to figure this out uh, not to tie it back but as I mentioned that I was in Egypt the airline industry is a great example of an industry that's still trying to figure out well what is the right number of planes to have in the air what are the which planes how big should they be what is the demand for travel in some areas the light switch is clicked on completely and other areas people are still reluctant to fly so given that we don't know this is why I think the Bank of Canada was slow but here's what they're going to do they're making up for it now they're going to really be trying to put the brakes on now the danger is what is the right number because if you put the brakes on too much then you take the inflation yes run away at 6.8 percent but what if it were to fall to one percent oh my gosh now we could be in danger of a recession so we want to put just the right amount of braking on the economy but not too much to cause a recession and that's the difficult times that we're in consumers have a role to play here and and frankly i guess so do employees uh because we've seen this movie before haven't we marvin i mean i, I understand this is a different circumstance uh but from an economic standpoint we've, we've seen the ebbs and flows and as soon as prices start going up, workers demand more money. It says, like, I, I can't buy my bread. I can't afford my mortgage anymore. And that only makes a bad situation worse if they start making those demands, doesn't it? In a way. So uh, I'm here to say, and I, I'm, I'm a broken record on this, that this 6.8% inflation you're seeing is not permanent. This is not the new normal. So we have a situation in Ontario where a number of the trades were on strike. And, and they want a 6% wage increase for each of the next three years. Well, I understand why you want 6% today to catch up so that your spending goes as the way it's supposed to, but it's not going to stay there. So we need to be thinking a little longer term. And there is the danger that this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. In other words, if we, uh, over, we consumers overreact to things, we could cause very economic circumstance we're trying to avoid. So I know this isn't helpful to people. I, I just need to be patient. We need to let this thing work out. Yes, in the short term, do what you can to increase your spending power. Yes, in the short term, maybe cut back on some of the, some of the luxury purchases that you might not need. Is this the right year for a new car? Is this the right year to buy a new boat or, or whatever it happens to be? But on the other hand, we will get back to normal. We just need the a little more time for these things to work their way through the system. Unfortunately, though, uh, there aren't enough people preaching that, or, or if they are, nobody seems to be listening, as you just alluded to. I mean, some of the construction unions uh, who uh, heretofore had rarely had labor disruptions are, are on strike now. They're looking for more money. They're looking for more, you know, solid bases now going forward on this, and because uh, they're anticipating. I mean, you know, when when you're sinking, you're, you're thinking this is the end. You you don't know that this is only going to last, uh, you know, twelve, eighteen months. You're afraid it's going to be, as you say, the new normal. Uh, how do you, how do you convince people about that, Marvin? Well, you you can't. You know, this is the other thing. We are we humans are notoriously short sighted. Earlier this year, uh, a trade union that is not on strike settled for a three-year contract in which they got a 3% wage increase each year. 
Normally, we'd consider that pretty good, especially in a world where inflation might be in the range between 1% and 3%. That would be a good contract today. These union workers are looking at that contract and saying, those suckers, you settled for too little. You, you don't. I think they'll be fine in the longer term. Yes, this year, no, they're not. They're going to lose a little something this year, but I think in the long term, they'll be fine. I, I just don't know how you get calmer heads because we all tend to react to the situation today. Take gasoline prices. Uh, it was a few years ago that we had a soaring in gasoline prices, and we saw a decline in the sale of SUVs and crossover-type vehicles, pickup trucks, what have you, because, oh, my gosh, fuel prices are so high. Then COVID hit. Prices fell dramatically in gasoline. We were buying trucks and SUVs like there's no tomorrow. You know, folks, you got to think longer term here. But I can say that. But we don't. We humans react to the way things are today, and we make the assumption that whatever is today will last forever. Uh, Mortgage, uh, another great example of that, people got so used to mortgages in the high 1% range, now that they're getting into the more of the 3 to 4% range, there are people who, quote unquote, are panicking about this, even though their mortgages were stress test at the 5% range, and they should be able to carry these without a problem, nonetheless, they're working themselves into a froth. To me, that we were having a sale on mortgages. Don't think that's the new normal. We'll get back to the Canadian average, which is around a five to 6% mortgage. And I have lived through times, I've personally had a mortgage that was in the 12% range. I survived, you know, we can do this, but people just live in the moment. They don't think anything longer. That's consumer confidence is a phrase that you've used many times when we've had these conversations, Marvin. Yes. And it, it's, I think it's a key part of the discussion because if the consumers don't have faith, and in this case in, in the Bank of Canada, in the, in the financial experts, uh, then they're going to make a short-term and, and probably irrational decisions. And, and I, I listen, I, I'm going to sit on the fence on this one because I'm fully sympathetic uh, to the Bank of Canada on this because they were trying to make projections about a pandemic. We haven't had a pandemic here for 100 years, and I don't think any of those guys were around back then. So they didn't know. I mean, they anticipated that, that you know, spending was going to, uh, you know, dry right up when the pandemic started. We were spending like crazy instead. So everything they thought should happen, according to, you know, Economics 101, didn't happen during right. the pandemic. Uh, but we consumers aren't saying, well, we really messed these guys up. They're blaming them. So, in yeah. other words, they, they've lost confidence in the very people that probably had it right, and we as consumers didn't do what we were supposed to do, and now we're going to blame them. That, that's the old finger-pointing idea, I guess. It is, and, and look, and in fairness, we've had two things that are unpredictable. Yes, we've had the pandemic, and I'm going to jinx this probably by saying I think we're the worst of the pandemic is behind us, but now we've got this war in Ukraine. Trust me when I, I tell you that the world leaders are desperately trying to avoid a World War III in this situation, but none of us know exactly what Putin's endgame is. Is he only going to take the Donbass region, claim victory, and then settle down and let peace come back? Or is this the beginning of something where he'll try to take Ukraine, and then maybe Estonia, and then maybe Latvia, and then Lithuania? We've got another highly unpredictable and very volatile situation now, it doesn't quite affect you and I on a day-to-day -day basis because we don't live in Europe. We live in North America where everything is relatively peaceful. But I'm telling you that situation in Europe could spin out of control and we could have all kinds of nightmare scenarios. So again, the Bank of Canada or the Federal Reserve Board in trying to choose their rates, 
they, they can control what they know, but they don't know where that is going to go. And so I won't be shocked if things in Ukraine get deeper and worse, uh, if the war threatens to go to other areas uh, uh, in Europe. Uh, we may have to backtrack on these interest rate corrections, and uh, we may not be fighting inflation. We may be fighting the realities of a world war going on. So it is a highly volatile time, and to plot any strategy, you, you know, you do your best thinking, but to get it right all the time when, you, when you're not in control of the variables, it's a very, very difficult situation. Well, especially to sell it. I mean, because we've come out of this before, uh, but it's it's been painful for some people. I mean, you know, we're not going to wake up one day and say, see, everything's going to be okay. I told you so. Uh, there are going to have to be some tough decisions made by these people, and we're going to have to suck it up just a little bit, frankly. And and that's always difficult, you know. Even if, if you know, the, the Bank of Canada comes back and says, okay, we're going to have to have a little short-term pain. I know the immediate response right now is going to say, we've been paying for two and a half years. I don't want any more. Not even short term, because we don't believe you. So this, this is this is going to be a rocky road until we get that that I guess that trust that's back right now. Right. Well, Bill, you, you know, the day after that on Thursday we have a provincial election, and it's been a bit of a forgive me for phrasing it like this, a bit of a snorefest. Uh, uh, Doug Ford was elected four years ago as the reaction to those tax and spend liberals. I'm going to get the balanced budget. I'm going to get this. And instead, for the current year, Doug Ford is running the largest deficit in Ontario history, where four years ago, fighting deficits got Doug Ford elected. Not fighting deficits is getting Doug Ford reelected. And again, I think what the government is doing, they, they also have a handle on the economy and, and affecting uh, fiscal policy, what have you. They are reluctant to pull out all the supports. They are reluctant to do the cutbacks because we may need to cushion people through difficult economic times. We know employment is going pretty well. Our unemployment rate is quite low. We're more or less at full employment, but the inflation is high. That causes other issues. And so everyone is, is trying to play that game as to what is the right amount of support to get people through. I know in hindsight, we're going to discover there was some money spent that shouldn't have been spent, that didn't need to be spent to get it through. But what is the greater error here, having more people struggle or maybe giving a few people an easier time than was necessary to get them through this? So this is what you're seeing. It's not just the Bank of Canada's fault. It's not just the, the fight of the Federal Reserve Board. Governments, too, are in this. Uh, and they're all trying to find a way to get their people through with the, the smallest amount of hassle. But it doesn't mean there won't be any hassle at all. Well, we wish them good luck. Uh, I, Marvin, again, welcome home uh, after your great trip. And uh, I appreciate uh, you shedding some light on this. Thanks so much for this. Take care. We'll talk again soon. Will do. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This past weekend, uh, the focus south of the border, of course, was uh, in Texas. Uh, a crowd in uh, Uvalde, Texas, of course, with the shrine and after the tragic death and murder, really, of 19 young people in that community. And uh, the president and uh, the first lady actually visited there and uh, talked to some of the parents uh, and attended a memorial service and a memorial mass in the uh, Roman Catholic Church in nearby uh, after the massacre at Robb Elementary School. And as uh, the president and first lady were getting back into the limousine, this is what the crowd was chanting. To the chant of do something, and the president actually stuck his head out uh, and said, we will, we will, making a promise that 
I know many other presidents have made in the past, too, after some of these tragedies. Uh, hope springs eternal, I guess, maybe this time around. Joining us to talk about this and, and related incidents uh, for our weekly look at Washington, uh, Reggie Cicchini, who, of course, is the Washington correspondent for Global News in uh, the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Reggie, thank you so much for the time. Uh, lots of emotion uh, in Texas, uh, of course, at the, uh, the memorial service uh, that the president and first lady attended. Uh, interesting juxtaposition, because not too far from there, of course, the National Rifle Association uh, was holding their annual conference. Uh, a much different message coming out of both cities, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I spent the nearly the last week uh, in Uvalde listening to parents, listening to um, to children who were the survivors uh, of this latest round of gun violence. Um, and, you know, and all of them saying what could have been done to protect these kids, what could have been done to protect these teachers or to protect this community now from the heartache that it's going through and whether that focuses on the police response, whether that focuses uh, on gun control. That was kind of um, an umbrella conversation up the road with the National Rifle Association. Um, it was that, you know, that that message that placates the, the, you know, this powerful lobby that guns aren't the problem. It's the people that are the problem. It's the social aspects that surround these people that are the problem. And then when we got back to Washington uh, last night, the conversation immediately points back to the White House and to Congress uh, with, you know, both sides really running in opposite directions. And when the president says that, you know, he will do something, it really is hard to see how he can do something because there is such a divide when it comes to gun control and gun rights in this country. Well, and as you mentioned, I, I know there have been reports actually over the last number of years, and you and I have talked about this recently, that the NRA doesn't have the muscle at one's head. It's still a very strong lobby. Uh, and they still spend a lot of money uh, supporting their their candidate, their, and not just their candidates, but the incumbents in Washington. And uh, and money talks down there. Yeah, absolutely, it does. I mean, if you look at somebody like um, like Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, he's been bankrolled uh, by gun rights groups, including the NRA, to the tune of hundreds of thousands, if not a million dollars. Uh, this is also a lobby that dumped tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, into the campaigns of uh, President Donald Trump and will likely continue to push money uh, into not only Republican candidates and campaigns through this midterm year, but also through uh, the 2024 election. And you're right, they have had internal struggles. They have had financial struggles. They have had scandals. They have been um, plagued by a number of lawsuits. But that doesn't take away um, their, their kind of background and the power that they have when it comes to card-carrying members who are vehemently opposed to any kind of legislation or any kind of conversation in this country that they see is going to infringe on their Second Amendment right to bear an arm. It's interesting. I know you've talked to a lot of the residents when you're on location there, Reggie. And one of the stories you were pointing back on was that you were talking about the citizenry down in Texas, and especially down in that neighborhood in Uvalde, trying to reconcile the support for stricter gun laws, but at the same time looking at the carnage that they saw in that school. Uh, it's it's almost ingrained in some of them. It kind of reminded me, uh, as I saw that report, of uh, of Gabby Griffiths, the uh, the senator from Arizona. This is some years ago, of course. Who was shot? A guy got broke. She was on location at a grocery store, I think, and some guy just ran in and shot her in the head. Uh, yet she still didn't think they needed tougher gun laws. This the, the 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 mindset differences here between the two of them, and I guess the 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 battle that's going on in some people's heads about this. They feel it's their right to, to bear arms. Uh, but at the same time, when does this carnage stop? That That's a question that I think Americans have to, to wrestle with, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a, it's a question that some more moderate Republicans are starting to reckon with as well. Someone like Adam Kinzinger, a Republican out of, um, out of Illinois, who is not uh, connected to the far right. He is more of a centrist Republican saying, look, 
uh, the Constitution is there. The Constitution guarantees every American citizen the right to bear arms. But is there a potential here that we can change the vagueness of the Constitution? Can we increase the age limits so that an 18-year-old can't go and purchase a weapon of war or two weapons of war or thousands of rounds of ammunition? Can we put age limits in place to make it that if you're going to be 21 to have to buy a beer, you have to be 21 to buy a gun? States are likely going to start doing this. We've seen this in New York. We've seen this in California. It is just a question now if Republican states are going to say, look, we won't take away the rights of people, but we can certainly limit how old you are in order to pick up what Democrats ultimately say is an AR-15 that doesn't need to be in the hands of citizens in the first place. But there's no flexibility on the other side, is there, Reggie? I mean, you know, the the discussion right after the, the last week's massacre was at least do something about you know about about checks on these people, you know, background checks. And and the message I, I got out of Washington from from your reporting down there was then they're not even going to budge on that. No, and look, there are Republicans and even some Democrats who say background checks aren't always going to be the final solution here, because as was the case with uh, the Uvalde shooter, there would have been nothing that popped up in the background um, to stop them from being able to buy a gun. But it's not stopping the conversation from Democrats of saying, look, we need to expand background checks. We need to have um, stronger red flag laws that could potentially mitigate the problem, but not stop the problem. But with Republicans, and this was a message that we heard not only from the NRA convention a couple of hours away from Uvalde, but also from um, Texas Governor Greg Abbott in Uvalde, pushing away from the gun again to say, look, this is a mental health problem. This is a problem to do uh, with video games or with people who come from broken homes or, as we heard from Congressman Mo Brooks over the weekend, that this is about um, a lack of morals in some people. This is how Republicans are placating the lobby by taking this away from the gun. But, Bill, it's worth pointing out, in Texas, as Greg Abbott is saying that this is a problem to do with mental health, he, in April, slashed more than $200 million from uh, mental health care in the state, and Texas ranks last out of the 50 states and District of Columbia for providing mental health care to residents. So, you know, while it's going to be a conversation amongst Republicans, they are doing very little to actually address what they're talking about. Governor Abbott, of course, as you were reporting uh, earlier, uh, it canceled his uh, his appearance at the NRA convention, uh, which led some people to speculate that maybe he was finally pointing the, at least part of the the blame towards them. Uh, not the case at all. I mean, he just, I guess it was not from a political optic standpoint, uh, good for him to be there. He did send a message of encouragement to the NRA. So we, he hasn't changed sides on this, has he? No, he hasn't changed sides on this. And And Greg Abbott, much like Ted Cruz, much like John Cornyn, uh, Republican leaders within the state, they all get incredibly high ratings from uh, the NRA, and they're not going to do anything to tarnish those ratings because they ultimately know that the NRA can put out uh, a strong uh, and a good message when it comes to elections and potentially endanger the political future of somebody who stands in the way of what the NRA message is and what the Constitution says uh, about the right to bear arms. Was it a, you know, would it have been politically damaging to, to Greg Abbott to show up at the convention not in Uvalde? Possibly. Uh, we saw um, Democratic gubernatorial candidate Beto O'Rourke interrupt a press conference to try and lay the blame for these deaths on the shoulders of Greg Abbott. He was promptly removed and, and criticized and called out by the, by the Republicans on the stage, including Ted Cruz. Uh, but but there is um, there is a strong opposition to how Texas's stance on gun rights is, considering under Greg Abbott's leadership, this is the fourth or fifth mass shooting in the state. 
but as you've you know reported earlier, uh, this is if anybody is hoping that this is going to turn things around and change people's minds about this, this is not the year for it, is it, Reggie? I mean, th- these are very important midterm elections uh, with the balance of power in both Congress and in the Senate uh, on the table right now. Nobody's going to change their stripes on this issue, are they? Well, I mean, Democrats certainly aren't going to become more lenient uh, when it comes to gun rights in the United States. And Republicans are likely not going to be walking back towards the center to say, here's what we can do to, you know, put more strength uh, into the gun control side of the conversation. Both sides are, you know, their heels are pretty dug in here. But much like we have with the abortion issue in the United States, Democrats are really going to try to now turn this into a kitchen table conversation because this is another issue in this country that impacts not just a few people, but impacts city after city after city who have dealt with these kinds of mass shootings, who are looking for these mass shootings to end. And for a city like Uvalde, which teeters back and forth depending on the year as to whether it kind of votes more Republican or votes more Democrat, Uvalde now knows that it's going to become a shoulder for the next city that this happens. And Democrats will take this and they will run with this message to say, look, we need to change something in this country. And the only way we can change things is if we put more Democrats in power. Both sides are really going to run with this as a pro or anti-gun control gun rights. Um, and it really is going to become yet another spotlight um, kind of issue and agenda item for this election. Reggie, I want to circle back to something you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, uh, because I, I get the impression this is a story that's uh, just beginning, not ending, and that's the police response on the day of the massacre. Uh, and I know you spent some time down there. You talked to a lot of the citizens, and, and uh, it's obvious, I, I guess, what their their you know concern is and their, their attitude right now. But we're starting to hear stories now that uh, the initial story from police themselves was, no, we were on the scene in, in moments. We rushed in there. One particular person individually from the, the Border Patrol uh, shot the perpetrator. Now we're finding out that they stood outside for over an hour. Uh, and, and the concern now is, well, how many students, how many kids, how many teachers could have been saved if they had done what they were expected to do? And that was uh, to go in there right away. Uh, it's, there's an anger that's growing out of this right now because these stories are starting to break. Do you sense that this is going to become a, a, a huge story as this investigation continues? Yeah, absolutely. It will. I mean, look, I talked to a mother who, whose arm was wrapped around her child who had been pulled out of school that morning because there was an award ceremony. And after the after her daughter won the award, they left school. Otherwise, she would have been in that classroom. And the mother said to me, look, an hour is enough time to kill a lot of people. A few minutes is enough time to maybe kill just a few people. Uh, and that police really did something wrong here. And it's a big deal that you have police saying, look, our communication was wrong. We uh, executed the wrong strategy here. But that's not going to sit well with these families who are never going to get their kids back with these schools who are never going to get their teachers and their students back. And this flawed response from police is now Um, a focus in Washington, the U.S. Department of Justice putting out a statement yesterday saying that it is going to investigate the police response. This is a rare move. This is something that 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 Maine Justice has only done a couple of times before when it comes to a mass shooting. But it's also important because the DOJ really is the only entity that can investigate this um, kind of uh, objectively and credibly with with a sense of independence to be able to figure out what went wrong and potentially stop this from happening again. But this police response really is becoming a a, a secondary big story as to what police did could have led to loss of life. Well, especially because of some of the comments that are starting to surface now, 
including from one officer, I guess, who was on the scene thinking, well, you know, it's a, I'm paraphrasing. He's basically suggesting, well, we thought the kids were all dead. So there was no no immediacy to it. To it. And I thought that's, that's bizarre to, to actually make a statement like that. Uh, and then there's that also a report over the weekend uh, that that they actually got a 911 call from somebody who was in the building and saying, when are you coming to get us? We need to be rescued, uh, which shocked everybody. And I guess, you know, these, these they didn't look prepared. They didn't look like they had a plan. And, and there's going to be hell to pay for that. Absolutely, there will be. And look, police are trying to use that initial excuse of we're a small town. But this is the same police force that was bragging uh, about the fact that they had carried out mass shooter drills and were prepared for this moment. And when you hear these survivor stories of a child calling police using a dead teacher's phone 40 minutes into this um, into this shooting taking place and other students having to come out to say, I was covering myself in the blood of my dead classmate in order to protect myself and play dead. Well, at the same time, photos are being released showing that police were evacuating kids from the school, you know, as this was going on. When there's a 2020 police training document out of Texas that says the first priority for police is to um, neutralize the shooter above all else, including an evacuation, that none of this was adhered to, that communication was so poor and so flawed from the very beginning, you know, this is going to lead to resignations. This is likely going to lead to, um, to criminal investigations. And that's why the DOJ is looking into this to say this was a fatal and flawed execution uh, of people that are tasked with, provide, uh, with providing protection to a community. Sad and tragic circumstance. Uh, we really appreciate uh, your reporting on this over the last few days, Reggie, on site and, of course, uh, subsequent to the stuff that's going to be happening in Washington. Uh, thanks so much for this. Uh, looking forward to our next conversation. Thanks, Phil. Take care. Reggie Giacchini, uh, Global News in Washington, who, as we mentioned, spent some time down uh, in uh, that town, of course, in Uvalde, uh, talking to some of the parents who lost their kids in that terrible, tragic situation just about a week ago. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.